0: There's a whole range and mix of emotions in, in the memory of that time, because each day would start with my having to play the, we had the answer phone machine and the messages that had been left overnight. And that was a dismal way to start a day because every day, every morning, there would have been messages left overnight which were bomb threats, death threats, people just screaming, die, faggot, die, because that's what cowards do. However, as the volunteers uh, started to come in, there was a vibrancy and a warmth and uh, a passion and determination, which was uh, infectious and kept us all going.
1: My name is Mark Thompson and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. As a black gay man, living with HIV since 1986, who has been involved at the forefront of activism, advocacy and prevention, it was important to me that these stories were told. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history. Moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us.
0: Meeting other out queer folk and coming to terms with what was happening really. And you know, finding about the facts, finding about the realities of how to take care and still be frightened because they were trying to frighten us.
2: And in fact, they said to us, why are you setting up this organization? It would just perpetuate the myth that AIDS came from Africa.
3: We have come so far because of AIDS in many ways, because of how we responded to AIDS. And that brought out the very best in us because we realized what we have is actually that bit more fragile than we thought.
4: You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop, wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host, created it, been doing it for seven years,
1: Against the backdrop of a conservative government with Section 28 just around the corner, there was a tradition of volunteering and community involvement and a very English approach to fighting the system. People looked out for people.
0: And that was true of the response to the AIDS epidemic. Because AIDS from the beginning was seen as others, it was seen as primarily gay men, swirling around in a cesspit of their own making, uh, as the Chief Constable of Manchester once said, injecting drug use. These are big taboos, the taboos around injecting drug use, around uh, homosexuality, around migration, around dying young Mm. actually. So Nick Partridge is a HIV activist. And of course the real fear of infectious disease and that's Absolutely understandable. What's tragic and awful is when infectious disease is seen as the fault of people um, rather than of a virus. And when that becomes a community fault for an already stigmatized group and disparate group of people, that becomes really dangerous.
1: The fear and focus on death by the media and the government created a narrative of doom that did nothing to support those of us who had been
0: diagnosed. And that's what we saw happen. So we saw increase in uh, homophobia and increase in anti-gay violence.
5: Gay plague. Gay plague. If I found out my son was gay, I'd take him out and shoot him
6: every bigot who had any kind of handle to their name like a chief constable or something seemed to be able to get masses of space on the paper whereas we and the doctors could get nothing not only was it well deeply hurtful and made me furiously angry but it was also terribly dangerous and so you were seeing people who were just thought to be gay even if they hadn't, you know, really clearly identified as gay, people just thought to be gay. People were assumed possibly to have HIV, and you know, there would be graffiti. There'd be dog experiment put through the doors. I mean, people people were having to move home to get away from some of the some of the things they suffered back then.
5: Police turning up raiding clubs with gloves on, raiding it for what I don't know, but raiding clubs would quarantine them. You know, nobody escaped the prejudice and the fear and, the, and the, the horror that people were laying on. It was the blame. It's like, well, what did you expect?
0: The general public became really frightened. Remember also, the NHS had changed from being people who cared for you to people who cured you. We had a whole generation of doctors who had been trained that they can save you. And all of a sudden, they were seeing people that they couldn't.
7: And I specifically remember this one particular patient who was my first experience of nursing somebody with HIV. Well, he had AIDS. He was dying. I I can still see his face now.
1: Sophie Strachan is an activist and sexual health advisor.
7: But, you know, he was in a side room. We had to double apron double glove pretty sure there was a mask as well and I just remember what felt so wrong at a time when somebody was dying that your immediate action as somebody in a nursing capacity is to show care towards that patient and How can you do that when you're barrier nursing, as we call it, to that level at a time when the affected community were facing death in such a cold environment? So it felt wrong that we couldn't treat these people in the same way that we could another patient because of the illness that they had. I just remember it feeling so cold. And I just remember feeling this deep sadness for that patient. (sighs) He was just by himself. And I don't know if he had family. I don't remember that information, but I just remember walking into the room and he was sitting there, well, lying there, acutely unwell, and his prognosis was not good. I I, I just, yeah, I can see him now, never left me.
5: I mean, there was an incident once, it was a Sunday, and I was on a late shift and we were desperately short. So we got an agency nurse and she turned up and she seemed perfectly lovely.
1: Teresa Burns is a nurse.
5: And I said, it was, it was officially the infectious diseases ward. So I said, you know, it's aprons, gloves, nobody needs a mask, you know, because we had no TB or any. It was, you know, there was time we needed a mask for TB, which was sensible. I said, but nobody's got TB, blah, 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 blah. And she said, have you got any AIDS on this ward? And I said, um what you mean like walking sticks? I knew exactly what she meant. What you mean like walking frames? And she went, no, no, AIDS, homosexuals. And I went, well, yes, a few. Well, I'm not having this, I'm a good Christian woman. And I said, that's fine, hold that thought. Just take a seat in there. And I put her in the little waiting room, got on the phone to the nursing officer. I I was incandescent, I was so angry. And I told her and give her her credit. She went, I'll be up, sent her out of the hospital. Out. I mean, we were desperately short, but we sent her out the hospital. I'm not exposing my patients to that shit. Quite quickly, you built up a relationship with these people. These are your peers in a lot of cases. You built up a relationship with these people. You knew that this wasn't going to end well, and so did they. They read newspapers. They watched the television. All the scaremongering shit that was going around. There was one or two—not everyone. There was one or two that had incredibly loving, kind families that totally accepted them, who they are, and didn't turn their backs on them. There was a lot of families that were very good and didn't turn their backs on their on their sons because it was men. I, I didn't look after any women on that ward at that time. For those that were left, you know, their friends were their family. Their friends were the ones that didn't abandon them. Their friends made sure they had treats. Their favorite music brought in, their favorite smell for the room brought in. They would come, you know, we would let partners stay in the room with them overnight. We weren't meant to, (laughs) sorry, we weren't meant to, but we bought a load of camp beds. We put camp beds because the beds were so small. I mean, we know damn well, they they got into bed with each other. But as long as you're in that bed, when I come in in the morning, I don't care. You know, the night staff knew if the flat was up, we didn't, we didn't bother going in. So we tried to make it as welcoming, as holistic, as we, d- we tried to protect them from the shit. We desperately we tried to ban newspapers coming onto the wards because you know especially if you were going the way into work you you kind of went to the newsagent on the way in and looked at the headlines to see if there was anything shit on the headline and if there wasn't you weren't too worried but if it was you know gay plague figures out of control quarantine them homosexuals blamed for plague you know it they deserve it all that shit is is the background that these men were trying to trying to live in.
0: So we had huge challenges of, how are we going to improve care and support in the community? How are we going to help people tell their families? At
1: the very beginning of the UK response, the Terence Higgins Trust was set up.
0: I
3: lived year to year expecting to be dead by the end of the year. I had no time to get perspective. I had something that I wanted to contribute, and basically, as with everybody else, I've just been another of these people who've pulled their finger out and done what they can. You know, we just, that's, that's all any of us is.
1: Rupert Whittaker was one of the founding members of the Terence Higgins Trust and Terry Higgins' lover. By naming the trust after Terry, the founder members hoped to personalise and humanise AIDS in a very public way. It focused on raising funds for research and raising awareness of the illness with the intention of preventing others from having to suffer as Terry had.
3: So we were saying, all right, how do we try and make a dent in this, stop it from basically steaming through the community and killing us all? And it was like, all right, uh, we've got to give that sort of uh, information. What, what, What do people need to protect themselves? We need to speak in the language of the people who's reading this because they need to trust that it's from people who actually care about their interests. And so how do you get through to people who you need to get through to? And you need to speak their language because you're in the same community.
1: A small group of volunteers from a range of backgrounds came together.
6: We were... A diverse group of people. That was important because we needed need, we needed all the support we could get. We needed the different voices to reach all the different communities that were being affected. We were shocked, we were frightened, and we were also galvanised that we had to do something.
1: Tony Whitehead was one of the founders of the Terence Higgins Trust.
6: I remember... Um, I think the first person with advanced age that I actually met was a a man who had come back from New York, and he was staying with his parents in north North London. And he called me over. He'd like to sit. He'd like to talk instead of just talking on the telephones, which we did a lot of, and especially in those you know pre-internet days, of actually going and giving personal help sitting down and talking to people one-to-one. I remember going over there, I, part of me so shocked to see how ill this person was, how ravaged by the illness. And part of me humbled at how kind his parents were. I saw him, saw him a few times until he died. It was just someone to talk to and someone to try and help like explain a few things to mum and dad. Um, that That's what I did, other people did rather more trying to help people with housing problems and uh, the prejudice they were suffering from from neighbours or the difficulty getting some really appropriate medical and social care. Having HIV, having AIDS could be a deeply lonely experience. Can I ask you, at that time, you talked about diversity. What about people of colour? Sadly, um, as I remember, it was a much more difficult to make really good and trusting links with people of colour. As I remember, the only people of colour we had involved in those days were either gay men or lesbians, and they were very few indeed. To reach the wider community of people of colour who, from the uh, very early epidemiology, we didn't quite know why, but they were at an increased risk, that was something that we were not really very successful at in those days, in those days.
1: The big organisations or the health authority were really talking to gay men. But within that, they were not looking at the nuances of black gay men's lives. I think for me, I didn't know where to turn or who to tell. Again, it was a one-size-fits-all gayness which was happening, which was cis white men, you know, usually middle class, you know, usually very well educated that were driving forward the narrative and therefore driving forward the response. And you needed to fit into that box rather than them opening the box. This is the eighties and the nineties where we're not talking about qualities or intersectionality or, or difference in that way. So I think there's definitely that, but that is also informed by we are in crisis We have to respond because nobody is. And therefore, we may not have the luxury to think about the nuances of all the various lives that occupy this world. They didn't have the language or the experience to be inclusive. All right. Yeah? Great. So you know what I'm doing the podcast about? So we're going to take you do a little bit of a trip down memory lane <laughs> and your work. Yeah. So the first thing, yeah. can we start off, Arnold, and can you just tell me your name and what you do?
2: My name is Arnold Corden, and I used to be a journalist and a broadcaster, but I'm retired now. <laughs> right. so- I'll be 88 this year, so.
1: Wow. Wow. Wow, you are an elder. Thank you for doing this, man. Thank you. So, Arnold, what was life like for you as a gay man living in in London in those early years?
2: Uh, I am from Sierra Leone, and I went back to do a job there in the broadcasting. A friend of mine, we were very, very close. We had the same lifestyle in London, and he said to me once when we spoke that he'd been ill and they discovered something called HIV and AIDS, uh, which was incurable and which was killing killing gay men. He got increasingly ill. And at that time, nobody would go near him. You know, the hospital, they kept him separately. And he was very, very upset about that. And so... When I came back, he was still alive, and I went to see him, and he said, look, this thing is hitting gay people, and it's going to hit black gay people more. And there's no no um, help for the black community. At that time, only the Terence Higgins Trust was the only one that was... Um, Helping people who are HIV and AIDS, but they were very, very close-knit. So it was looking into the eyes of my friend who was dying and saying to me, Why don't you set up something for black people? And he said, I'm sure you can do it. And I said, Yes, I would. And in the Spare room of my house, I set up Blackliners. I set up a helpline and it took up from there.
1: Blackliners became a voluntary organisation and charity. They targeted the Black and ethnic minority communities in the area of HIV prevention and support services. So, so you, on your own, you set up this helpline in your bedroom? Yes, and um, the
2: surprising thing, that by then there were lots of young gay people around who didn't take it seriously. They all felt that, oh, it was a white man's disease. When their friends started dying, then they took it seriously. Then we started having more and more calls on the phone. And at that time, you know, the newspapers were full of, oh, it was a gay disease. It came from Africa from monkeys and all that. And we got a lot of calls on the line, people pretending that they were Black and they were HIV or AIDS positive, wanting to to get some information from us to write lurid stories about the disease. And we were very, very, we had to be very careful at the time about what we said on the phone or what information we gave out and to whom. At that time, the government began to realize the importance of the illness and we were able to get some funding um, from the local council and we were able to set up an office and train volunteers and started having people to help. Uh, I remember one day It was the day before Christmas, and we were in the office, about five or six people, getting ready to go home to to have a good evening before Christmas. And a young man came in, he was about 20, with a black bag full of all his clothes. And A, he had been diagnosed as HIV, and his parents had found out, and they'd thrown him out. And somebody told him how to find us, so he arrived. And he had nowhere to, to go. And luckily, one of our volunteers had a house that he was renting rooms to. And he said, I'll take him in. So he, he, he take him in for the night. But then we suddenly sort of realized... Although there's only one person, but there must be more people who've been thrown out of their houses, more young people especially. And the seed was sown about, is it possible for us to get what I thought would be a house, that we can convert into rooms, that people like them, somebody like that, can come and have a a place to stay, then approach, one of the big construction companies. I'm not quite sure of the name now, whether it's Wimpy or one of those. Mm-hmm. And we were invited to to meet them. Mm-hmm. So we went and we explained to this guy what we were thinking of doing, of finding a house and converting them. And he said to us, you know, it it's very expensive to convert a house into rooms. It'd be cheaper to build something. Oh. So we said. <laughs> so we said, <laughs> well, we're gonna get money to build something. And he said, You go find the land, we'll build it for you. I mean <laughs> I remember coming out of that meeting and we're hugging ourselves.
1: <laughs> and it did come to, to pass. That's an amazing achievement, Arnold, to, to, yeah. to be able to provide homes and housing for people. I mean, you must be so proud of that. We were,
2: We were
1: very we proud.
2: I think, you know, looking back now, at the time, I never thought of it as help, just helping people. But then later on, as see, it grew and grew, and it became quite one of the biggest um, charities helping black people in South London. And um, so I'm very proud of that.
1: Those support systems weren't just life-changing, they were life-saving. But it took me a while to find my place and my people. I was first, <laughs> I first went to the Landmark because I needed to leave home. Um, I'd been given notice by my mum because I was acting out quite a bit. And she said, you know, I want you out by your house by your 21. And a friend of mine had said, look, you know, go to the Landmark, you know, because you're living with HIV, you can get help with housing. The Landmark AIDS Centre was set up in Tulse Hill in South London, which offered treatment and support for people living with and affected by HIV and AIDS at the time, so many people were being evicted and kicked out of their family homes or were getting abused for neighbours. So the Landmark provided a housing advice service. And so I went along there just to get something out of it and met an amazing guy called Andrew Loxton, who was the housing manager there. And that's when I discovered that the Landmark could not only provide me with that instant support around trying to get me housed, um, but also there was this suite of wonderful services. You know, uh, as a positive person or a person who was, had full blown AIDS and was really ill, you could go there and you could get all of the care and support in the community that you couldn't get elsewhere. So you could go and you could get a hot meal, you could get your laundry done, you can get complimentary therapies, talking therapies, and sometimes it was just a space to go and feel incredibly safe. And I could be marked with HIV there without any fear of judgment. When I was out in the street Monday to Friday, you know, it didn't occupy me, but the world was really shit. I could literally walk in there and everything would just lift. You know, everything just felt safe. Cause every single place that I looked was either frightening externally because it was happening to people. So I knew that I could sit there and it would just be like, we got you. And whilst they weren't filled with hope, there was a real sense of, if not surviving, then we would get through this together. And that was the thing that carried us through. There, There wasn't a lot of hope. But there was a lot of care and a lot of love and a lot of compassion and kindness. And that was, that was beautiful. In the next episode of We Were Always Here.
0: AZT was really hard. It The, the side effects were unbelievable. I looked very ashy, you know, my toenails, my fingernails were black, like black. And at that point, I don't really think I knew a lot about the side effects, you know. And I also believed that, you know, there wasn't much of a choice at that particular point. If it was a choice between life and death, you know, I could bear the side effects.
1: We Were Always Here was presented by me, Mark Thompson. It was produced by Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistant was Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli production.